From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, October 16th. I'm Marco Werman. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton claims responsibility for security at U.S. diplomatic missions abroad, apparently to deflect some heat from President Obama. We hear how Libyans feel about the rancor over the September attack in Benghazi. The way we see it is Obama stood by Libya, Libya messed up, and now he's getting the heat for it. Also today, Britain refuses to extradite accused hacker Gary McKinnon to the U.S., and Cuba relaxes travel restrictions for its own citizens. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab. With few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The killing of four Americans in Libya, including Ambassador Chris Stevens, continues to haunt the Obama administration. The issue keeps cropping up on the campaign trail, and it's likely to come up again in tonight's second presidential debate. The Romney campaign has been hammering the administration for failing to provide adequate security. We'll hear the view from Libya, but first the world's Jason Margolis examines the accusation. Within hours of the attack on the American consulate in Benghazi, Mitt Romney was blaming President Obama for a failure of leadership. The Obama administration fired back, criticizing Romney for politicizing the attack. And so it's gone, leading up to the vice presidential debate last week. Here's Republican vice presidential nominee Paul Ryan. Our ambassador in Paris has a Marine detachment guarding him. Shouldn't we have a Marine detachment guarding our ambassador in Benghazi? To which Vice President Joe Biden responded, The congressman here cut embassy security in his budget by $300 million below what we asked for. So was there enough security in Benghazi? And if not, could more have been provided? It's extremely difficult to know what is necessary and what is proper in situations like this. Alan Henriksen is the director of diplomatic studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He says under international law, the host country is responsible for security at embassies and consulates. If the host country, in this case Libya, can't fulfill that responsibility, then it would fall to the country with the consulate, the United States. So this is a very difficult balance for countries that have embassies and consulates overseas to strike. This is a a very serious problem that is affecting almost every country that has embassies and consulates abroad right now. Henriksen says it's unfair to exploit the situation in Benghazi for political reasons. But he says in retrospect, more could and should have been done to protect Americans there. Max Boot agrees with that assessment. He's with the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington and is also a defense advisor to the Romney campaign. Boot says Romney should talk tonight about the failure of the Obama administration in Libya. You know, it happened 
during the Obama administration at a time when they're boasting about their achievements in the Middle East, and in particular in the war against al-Qaeda. And I think what this shows is that al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups are far from defeated. They remain a potent threat, and the administration has to take accountability for what happened. But if there was a security failure, who was ultimately responsible? Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says she is. She told CNN last night, quote, I take responsibility. Alan Henriksen at Tufts says Clinton is not just trying to provide political cover for the president. The protection of embassies, the negotiation of arrangements with the host country is a State Department responsibility. Romney advisor Max Boot, however, says Secretary Clinton shouldn't shoulder the blame. As Harry Truman used to say, the buck stops here. The father of U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens also weighed in on the matter. He said it would be abhorrent to turn his son's death into a campaign issue. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Correspondent Marine Olivezi is in Tripoli, Libya. And as we just heard in that piece uh, from Jason Margolis, Marine, five weeks after the attack in Benghazi, it continues to be a contentious issue here. What are Libyans saying about the different accounts of the September 11th assault on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi? Talking with people here in Tripoli, um, we can still feel an overwhelming mix of shock and contrition and sadness over the, the Benghazi attack. Take Salahedin al-Hashab, who is an oil engineer. Uh, he moonlights as a cashier at his brother's grocery store, and that's where I met him last night. Salahedin remembers Ambassador Stevens and says he still can't make sense of what happened. This guy, you know, he, he go out to the street and he mix with the public people here. He wants to help Libyan people, you know. So what happens, very, 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 very bad, you know. What would you tell an American who says we shouldn't have helped them? See how they say things? Why, why, why did we help them? That was a mistake. Actually, there is nothing to say, you know. Just we are very, 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 very sorry. I'm really sorry, you know. It's from my heart, yeah. Apparently, Ambassador Chris Stevens uh, still looms large for uh, many Libyans. Are Libyans aware of how the Benghazi attack and its aftermath are playing out in the U.S. uh, presidential campaign, Marine? They don't know much about the nuts and bolts of the congressional hearing and of the back and forth between the Obama and the Romney campaigns. But still, they do have an idea of the general picture. And here's how one Libyan describes it. The way we see it is uh, Obama stood by Libya, Libya messed up, and now he's getting the heat for it, basically. I don't know if that's uh, making it too simple, but that's how we see it right now. So that's Rida. He works in an ad agency, and he's been very active on social media during and after the revolution. Rida says that even if Libyans are not well aware of all the political wrangling going on in the U.S., most do feel a sense of guilt right now at the idea that Libya has turned into a liability for the Obama administration. Whom do Libyans blame for the tragic events that, that happened five weeks ago today? Read the, the social media activist we just heard. He was joking this morning after he heard Hillary Clinton uh, declared she was taking responsibility. And he said, well, Hillary Clinton says it's her fault, right? So it's not ours. And of course, that's a joke. And it speaks about the fact that for most Libyans, the reason of the attack is actually pretty straightforward. It's really not about failure of U.S. intelligence or the State Department, but it has everything to do with failure from their own transitional government. Uh, To them, the attack illustrated that one undeniable fact of Libya today, which is that the government is weak and the militias are still on the loose. 
Let me ask you this, Maureen. Uh, are you able to get a general sense of how closely Libyans are following the U.S. election and what they think is at stake for them in this vote in November? Many Libyans here remember the last Republican president, George W. Bush, uh, whose foreign policy wasn't really popular at all in, in the Arab world. And I interviewed this morning one Libyan freelance journalist, Eba Halshibani, and she says she is, for one, really following very closely the U.S. election, and she's holding a breath over the, over the result. Personally, I think the Libyan-American relation could be harmed if... Mitt Romney wins. He's clearly stubborn when it comes to foreign policies, and he takes us back to the Bush administration kind of attitude, which pretty much scares a lot of decision makers here in the Middle East in general. A lot of them are afraid if Mitt Romney wins, that could mean frozen relationship between America and Libya. Well, one voice there, of course. Correspondent Marine Olivezi in Tripoli. Good to speak with you, Maureen. Thank you. Welcome. There's a play new to this country that mirrors some of the anti-Muslim tumult and the issues that surround the Benghazi story. Now or Later is a title and is presented by the Huntington Theatre Company here in Boston. The scene? Election night in America, 2008. As the results roll in, things look good for the fictional Democratic presidential candidate. The candidate's son, John, a junior at an Ivy League college, is in his hotel room waiting for his father to claim victory. But that night, blurry photographs showing John dressed as the Prophet Muhammad at a campus party begin surfacing on the web. The campaign wants the son to issue an apology, but he refuses, saying it's a free speech issue. Here's a scene where John explains his thinking to his mother. I'm not an envoy to Pakistan. I'm not brokering peace in the Middle East. You read the news. You know what happened with the cartoons in Denmark and when they tried to get the knighthood in England? But I'm not a newspaper cartoonist. I didn't write a novel. I am a college student. I went to a party. Um, I won't be forced into becoming a media figure over three blurry pictures just because some hyperbolic political advisor needs to cover his ass. That's a scene from the play Now or Later. It was actually written in 2007 and premiered at London's Royal Court Theatre in 2008. Chris Shen is the playwright and joins me here in the studio. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. What have you learned about the immense sensitivity surrounding the subject since you wrote the play? It's an incredibly difficult thing for people to think about and talk about. And in dramatizing it, I was acutely aware of how fraught the discussion is. You know, there, there's a, an interesting personal story really also behind how I came to write the play. In the early days of Facebook, I got friended very randomly by a Pakistani student who'd been educated in the West and was clearly from a, a wealthy family. And we began, even though we didn't know each other, corresponding, and he was very friendly. And one day it emerged in our correspondence that I was gay, and he remarked very directly and clearly that homosexuality was a terrible evil and a scourge. And, uh, you know, it was very clear that his uh, Muslim religion led him to this point of view. And what I found so remarkable about how he articulated himself and how our discussion went after that was that there was no common ground. There was no way that had we talked more or gotten to know each other better that his opinion about homosexuality was going to change. Mm. And I found that to be so striking and stunning, really. And I thought, wow, there are some issues that people simply cannot and will not agree about, no matter how much discussion 
and how much empathy and goodwill is available. And I felt like that was a very potent thing to try to dramatize. And John Jr., the the main character in Now or Later, the son of the soon-to-be president, is gay. And I imagine that your dialogues with this Pakistani guy you met on Facebook prompted you to fold in this extra element of cultural dissonance. Those discussions had a huge impact on the play because they were very personal to me, those issues of the acceptance of homosexuality. So that personal level found its way into the play very, very easily after that correspondence. You wrote uh, an hour later, five years ago, shortly after the Danish cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad created such a stir around the globe. And a few months ago, when you found out that your play would be produced in the U.S., uh, I gather you were kind of concerned about its relevance. But then the Benghazi attack happened uh, happened on the heels of this uh, these huge Muslim protests at an anti-Muslim video. How did all these current events feel to you having written this play? Well, it's true that when we were nearing the beginning of rehearsals, I was priming myself to have to explain to potential audiences why this play was relevant. The issues of the conflict between Western ideas of freedom of of expression and fundamentalist Islamic views about the Prophet Muhammad were not in the news, were not something people were talking a lot about. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have to really work hard to convey to people that these issues are still alive and still very important for us to think about and address. So obviously, it was a startling change when Benghazi happened, and these issues were at the forefront again of the cultural discussion. Did you think about doing any rewrites? You know, I I think what I've learned is that I wrote this play in 2007, and I haven't changed a word since then. And so when we see how little things have changed from, you know, five years ago in these debates, I think we see how deep and intractable these issues are. So that's why I decided not to make any changes. Chris Shin is the playwright of Now or Later. Chris, very nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Christopher Shin's Now or Later runs through November 10th in Boston. We have a behind-the-scenes video of Now or Later, and there are photos from the Huntington Theater production, allattheworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's hard to imagine this happening, but it is official. As of January 14th, just about anyone in Cuba who wants to travel off the island will be allowed to go. For decades, Cuban authorities have severely restricted who can leave. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford is in Havana. This reform was expected, Sarah, but how big a deal is it actually? Well, I think psychologically, it's a huge deal for people. Uh, Speaking to Cubans here in Havana, they're saying at last, you know, finally, this has happened. It's something that's been extremely unpopular here, the system of having to get government permission to leave the island. Very unpopular for a very long time. And it was more than a year ago that the president, Raul Castro, said that the system would change. And Cubans have been waiting impatiently ever since. So it is a big deal. It does mean a little bit more freedom for people here on the island who want to travel. Uh, It essentially means that they won't face 
a bill of $350 all told for all the paperwork involved, which for a country where the average salary, average monthly salary is $20 is obviously very significant. So a bit more freedom and a bit cheaper for anyone who wants to travel. Right. And as I said earlier, just about anyone will be able to to travel. But uh, who will be able to leave and who can't? Well, yes, there are still restrictions. Uh, in fact, when you look in the, the small print of what's changed, uh, it talks about two things. It talks about what Cuba calls its human capital. Now, essentially what that means is the people that the, the system here has spent a lot of money educating to become uh, highly valued professionals, and particularly that means doctors and scientists. Now, they will still face restrictions. Mm. And also, uh, instead of the exit permit, what people now have to do is to update their passport to, uh, I think, get a stamp in it. and and. That process does also retain uh, restrictions. There's a whole list of reasons why your passport can't be updated. And at the very bottom, it says, for any other reasons of public interest that are defined by the authorities. So I think potentially government critics, dissidents here may still have trouble when they want to travel. Right. So why is this happening? What does the government of Raul Castro hope will come of this new freedom? Well, I think it's it's partly about being seen to give uh, citizens here more freedom. Um, the headline in the Communist Party newspaper talked about this being a response to the will of the people. So that's how they're presenting it. But it's also about economics. Uh, it's about creating a system where people, uh, like in any other country, can travel off the island and can come back and bring their money, bring the money that they make abroad and bring their new knowledge back to the island to help with the economy here, which really hugely needs that uh, investment, if you like. Do you get any sense that the Cuban authorities uh, are a little worried about what might happen, perhaps a massive exodus, you know, like the one that preceded the collapse of East Germany at the end of the Cold War? Well, I, th- I think that's certainly been something that, that uh, people have seen as a possibility. But you have to bear in mind that uh, even though Cubans are now, or at least from January, will be free to leave the island without government permission, they will still have to get visas for the countries they want to enter. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford in Havana. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Last week, when the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments on considering race in college admissions, we touched on what Brazil is doing on that front. More than half the population there is black, Indian, or mixed race, and Brazil's government is wholeheartedly embracing affirmative action. Case in point is the new law designed to quickly boost racial diversity at traditionally white universities. But as John Otis reports from Brazil, not everyone is on board with the plan. A professor lectures students here at the architecture department of the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. This is Brazil's top university for future architects. Yet it's nearly impossible to find a person of color in the hallways and classrooms. I ask student Bernardo Estefania why that is. There's not too much black people here. They don't know enough to be in this university or other universities. Brazil's elite universities are public and free, yet they are dominated by middle and upper class students from mostly white families. These students typically attend expensive private high schools, and that's made it easier for them to pass the rigorous public university entrance exam. By contrast, most students from poor, black, Indian, and mixed-race families attend overcrowded and run-down public high schools. Carlos Madeiros is a former affirmative action official at Rio City Hall. He says the country's two-tiered educational system holds back people of color. There's this vision of Brazil as a uh, racial democracy. Uh, so it was adopted by the state, taught at schools, publicized by the media. We're not racist, we're not... It's, uh, But at the same time, things were happening against black people all the time. 
To force Brazilian universities to better reflect the country's racial diversity, President Dilma Rousseff signed the Law of Social Quotas in August. The law stipulates that within four years, Brazil's public universities must set aside half of their admission spots for public high school students who are either poor or come from black, Indian, or mixed-race families. Many of Brazil's public universities have been experimenting with quotas over the past decade. Madero says these policies amount to official recognition that racism remains a huge problem in Brazil. He says quotas are already making a difference. It's already happening. For instance, we had the first doctors who entered the university through that system. It supplies us with role models for the black community. But the new system is raising red flags at some universities. Angel Rocha dos Santos is an assistant dean at the University of Rio de Janeiro. She says the university put in place a 30% quota system two years ago. These students often need extra tutoring as well as room and board stipends to stay in school and keep up with their classmates. But Rocha says the new law makes no provisions for these disparities. I'm against Architecture professor Nadia Fattorelli says that rather than top-down mandates to integrate, the government should invest more in public high schools. That way, she says, public high school graduates would have a better shot at getting into the best universities based on merit. In my opinion, this is the best way for everybody to be equal and fight for a place here. To be here, you have to be good. But I find a different attitude when I visit São Luís in the northern Brazilian state of Maranhão. São Luís is much poorer than Rio and has a larger percentage of black residents. Rodrigo Passos sells traditional Maranhão music at his CD store. He comes from a mixed-race family. He dropped out of school after fourth grade. São umas pessoas the same thing happens to many students in Maranhão, Passos says, but the new quotas could provide the opportunity for poor people to pursue higher education. In fact, he's thinking of going back to school. At the Federal University of São Luís, I meet a black student named Abiodun Akinwole. The black people who are poor are getting in this university. Akinwole strongly supports set-asides based on income and race because he's seen how affirmative action helped his own family. Akinwole was accepted here under a voluntary quota system imposed five years ago. That same program allowed his bricklayer father to get a university degree. My father is 60 years old and now he's a teacher. For the world, I'm John Otis, São Luís, Brazil. By the way, I'm headed to London for the election. Yes, the U.S. election. America's voting, but the world will be watching. So we're taking the show to a truly global hub. If you've got something you want us to ask the people in London about their view of the election or America's role in the world, send me a tweet at Marco Werman and be sure to include the hashtag #TheWorldVotes or head to theworld.org/elections. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a monastery remote even in biblical times. And the monks who came here were coming like to the edge of the inhabitable world. It was such a harsh desert. People came here for the silence. 
and because this had been the place sanctified by the revelations of God. That story ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Britain has seen some high-profile extradition cases of late. There's the ongoing saga of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. There's also the case of Abu Hamza, a London imam now awaiting trial in New York. But here's one case that's gotten less press. Gary McKinnon has been fighting extradition to the United States for the better part of a decade now. And today, Britain's Home Secretary said McKinnon won't be extradited. The world's Clark Boyd has been following the McKinnon case for years. Uh, Clark, take us back a bit, first of all. What is Gary McKinnon's story? So you have to go back to 2001-2002. That's when Gary McKinnon, sitting in London, working as a computer systems administrator, says he basically got really bored and decided to try to hack into some U.S. military and NASA computer systems. And um, he he said that, uh, you know, he calls himself a a bumbling computer nerd. He said it was actually incredibly easy to break into these systems, and that's what he did. You have to think, 2001, 2002, this is just around the September 11th attacks, and um, he got caught. And then the U.S. decides to get him extradited. What's happened since then? He was basically put under house arrest. He couldn't leave his house at night. He, every evening he had to check in with the local police station. And, he, and, you know, the most horrible thing for him, he said, was that he wasn't allowed to use any computer whatsoever. In that time, his mother, Janice Sharp, uh, began kind of explaining his story. And today, here's the way she described his life over the past decade. He said that he felt like a dead person. He felt he was dead. He had no job. He had no children. He doesn't go on holiday. He doesn't leave the house. They had no conversation. He had nothing. And he felt he was worthless. It's worth noting, too, here, Clark, that uh, he was diagnosed, Gary McKinnon was diagnosed with depression in 2008. Uh, Is that why uh, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, decided to say he will not get extradited? Ultimately, that is one of the reasons, she said. Of course, this uh, was in 2008. And so the real push from his legal team over the last few years has been to say, if you send him to the United States, his depression will take over and he will not be able to survive in a U.S. jail. And from what Theresa May said today, it was evident that that's what she took on board, that that sending him into this situation would be a violation of his human rights because it was likely that he would kill himself. It's pretty extraordinary, the parallels with the Julian Assange case. What has been Gary McKinnon's response to today's ruling? Well, he hasn't had any public response to it. As always, it's his mother uh, who is who is kind of speaking for him. And, and she basically said, oh, you know, they hugged, they cried, they just looked at each other. He's, he's basically been rendered speechless. But I should also note that not only did Theresa May say that he's not going to be extradited, she also announced that she's going to be proposing changes in the UK's extradition treaty because of this case. And it was actually that that Gary McKinnon's mother focused on in her remarks today. I'm hoping that because the extradition treaty is getting changed, that he'll feel that at least that 10 years and 7 months has brought about something that is going to help everyone. So it's, it's not been a waste, it's achieved something, and I hope that will give him a little bit of uh, self-respect. 
I suppose, Clark, it's hard to say whether uh, all these ordeals for Gary McKinnon may have prompted the Depression. Uh, What has been the U.S. response so far? Well, they've always seen this as using Gary McKinnon as an example. You cannot hack into our computer systems, and we will go after you no matter where you are, no matter where you've done this, and we will get you to the United States, and you will stand trial here. There was one legal expert, a former White House advisor, who said today, he, you know, he called this decision laughable. He said, what, what does this mean that all anybody has to do around the world is say, well, don't extradite me to the United States because I might kill myself, and, and that's it? Um, so you can imagine that the United States is not going to be too happy about this. So what next for Gary McKinnon? I mean, is he truly out of the woods as far as facing charges? The one thing about this story over the last 10 years is that there's always one more thing, hmm. always one more hurdle that he has to overcome. And now, even with the extradition seemingly settled, British prosecutors will have to decide whether to try him in a British court for what he's done. The world's Clark Boyd, who's been following the story of Gary McKinnon and his case for the past few years. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Marco. Another big legal decision today, a U.S. appeals court threw out the conviction of Osama bin Laden's driver, who was once imprisoned in Guantanamo. The court said the charge of material support for terrorism wasn't a war crime at the time that Salim Ahmed Hamdan was driving and assisting bin Laden. We have a blog post from Guantanamo on how that decision could affect military hearings underway there. It's at theworld.org. In the U.K., everyone knew Jimmy Savile. He was a TV host, DJ, and cultural icon all rolled into one. He was known for BBC programs like this. Welcome to January the 1st, 1964. It's 6.34pm, and it's a program that you've never heard of before. It's called Top of the Pops, and there's the charts. And he was known for his philanthropy. He raised around $75 million for various charities in the UK. His public service included getting people to wear seatbelts. No matter how short the journey, nag yourself to remember this drill. Clunk the car door and click the seatbelts. Clunk, click every trip. He was knighted by the Queen, and when he died last year, more than 4,000 people paid their respects. But now Jimmy Savile is known for something else, allegations of sexual assault. Jim didn't do kissing. He didn't do um, emotion or foreplay or anything. It was just basically what he wanted in and out, and that was it. He hadn't restrained himself just to my breast. He'd also had... That's a clip from a TV documentary that aired in Britain earlier this month. The program interviewed a number of women who say that Jimmy Savile molested them when they were teenagers. Sarah Lyle is a London-based correspondent with The New York Times and has been following the story. Sarah, Jimmy Savile was a respected personality, but these allegations of sex abuse have set off a firestorm. Why a year after his death did this controversy erupt now? ITV, which is one of the BBC's competitors, as you said, put together this program where a bunch of women who said that they'd been assaulted by him when they were kids or when they were teenagers came forward to tell their stories. And it's raised a lot of issues within the BBC and then within the charities, um, among the charities where Jimmy Savile worked, where a lot of people are now coming forward and saying, we thought there was something wrong with him all along. People who say they were victimized by him have come forward. You know, one of the things that's most troubling is it seems that there were, you know, rampant rumors about him and even evidence about his behavior all this time, both in and outside of the BBC, and nobody acted on it. Well, the issues surrounding Jimmy Savile's employer, the BBC, which co-produces this program, I mean, that's been very toxic, as you pointed out. There have been even allegations that the BBC killed an investigative news report about Jimmy Savile? 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that happened. Uh, in December, they had put together on their Newsnight program, which is a current affairs program that goes out every night, a piece about these allegations. They killed the Newsnight program. The Newsnight people say that they killed it for editorial reasons because the allegations didn't stand up. They went back and looked at the records, and the police had actually investigated some of these allegations and presented it to prosecutors who decided not to press charges. So they decided that there wasn't enough, they say, to actually run with the program. But there's been questions over whether there was any influence or pressure put on them by BBC executives, whether there were some worries about, because he'd been such a celebrated BBC figure, whether this would adversely affect the corporation's reputation. Sarah, you mentioned uh, some of the uh, investigations into these allegations when Jimmy Savile was alive. Why suddenly now are all these investigations now sticking? Well, it's, I mean, it's new investigations. And the police decided to restart um, an investigation after this documentary came out. And they're now saying they have, you know, hundreds of leads that they're pursuing. They think there might have been 60 victims. People have been coming up, you know, from hospitals where he worked, from charities where he worked, children's homes. People who were kids back then or teenagers back then have said, I was molested, I was groped. And so there's uh, many police departments around the country are involved in this investigation. So it really was touched off by this, this documentary. That's the only real thing that happened to push all this forward. What's been the public reaction? Well, real revulsion. I mean, he, he was a very odd-looking character. People sort of thought he's this funny, eccentric bachelor, and he can get away with this behavior because, uh, you know, we like eccentric characters here. You know, and when he died, there was tributes to him. As you say, all those people went to his funeral. You know, lots of stuff is named after him, wings of hospitals, streets, all sorts of things. And now suddenly his family's had to go and take down his gravestone because they were worried it would be defaced. You know, no one suddenly wants to be associated with him. The thing that's hard, as you say, is that he did give so much money to charity. And, you know, the charities really, really benefited from it. Sarah Lyle, a London-based correspondent with The New York Times, telling us about the case of the late Jimmy Savile and allegations of sexual assault. Sarah, thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Imagine that these monks are chanting about today's geo-quiz. They belong to St. Catherine's Monastery, where monks have lived for at least 17 centuries. In a minute, we'll hear from scholars who are trying to decipher some ancient texts or palimpsests. But first, let's take a stab at putting this monastery on the map. The monastery sits on a mountaintop in the southern part of a triangular peninsula that sits between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Through the centuries, this peninsula has served as a land bridge between the continents of Asia and Africa. All right, time's up. The answer we were looking for is Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. It's home to St. Catherine's Monastery and to a remarkable partnership now underway between monks and scientists. They're all trying to recover some hidden writings that date back more than a millennium. Noel King has this report from Sinai. Evidence of the monastery's age is everywhere. Grooves are worn into St. Catherine's stone staircases, the legacy of a thousand years of footfalls. Knights from the Crusades carved graffiti into the stone walls. A shrub in the courtyard is believed to be the burning bush of biblical lore. 
in ancient times, Sinai was the most remote of all the Christian pilgrim sites. Father Justin is the monastery's librarian. And the monks who came here were coming like to the edge of the inhabitable world. It was such a harsh desert. People came here for the silence. And because this had been the place sanctified by the revelations of God. Father Justin oversees a treasure trove of ancient texts. Because the monastery is so remote and because the dry mountain air is so conducive to preservation, the library at St. Catherine's holds manuscripts that date as far back as the 5th century. For many years, monks and scholars have known that some of the manuscripts are special. They are old, yes, but there is even older writing hidden underneath their pages. These manuscripts are called palimpsests. Mike Phelps is director of the Sinai Palimpsest Project. Writing material is extremely expensive, and so a medieval scribe would scrape or wash pre-existent manuscript to make them reusable for a new manuscript. They were never able, or almost never able, to perfectly erase the underlying layer. It appears as sort of a coffee-brown stain on the manuscript. You can see that the writing is there, but it's not necessarily legible. Phelps and a team of scientists and engineers, specialists in physics, optics, and lens design, are attempting to read the ancient text using high-tech imaging tools. In a darkened command center beside the monastery's library, each page of a manuscript is photographed 31 times in a range of light wavelength. Confirm f-stop, it's 11, okay, lights off. Everybody has goggles on, and we're good to go. Here comes the magic. Once the page has been digitized electronically, computer programs combine all of the spectral data and, almost like invisible ink, the writing underneath emerges. 31 pictures all of the same page. Yes. And nobody has seen the writing underneath this page for about a thousand years, is that right? Yes. You two are both Greek. Can you read this? I can read uh, pateron. You see a -A P-A-T-E-R-O-N. This turns out to be a letter of advice from an elder monk, a pateron, to a novice. Who was this monk? Why did he have access to valuable parchment? Was he someone important? Once scholars can see more of the hidden writing, they'll try to answer these questions. And while they aren't sure what they'll find, other manuscripts at St. Catherine's have yielded treasures in the past, including two literary texts in a lost language called Caucasian Albanian, used by an ancient Christian kingdom in western Azerbaijan that was destroyed in the 7th or 8th century. The simple, deliberate lifestyle at the monastery seems contrary to the high-tech science taking place here. The monks wear traditional black robes and gather to pray several times a day. They converse mostly in Greek. I asked the monastery's abbot, 76-year-old Archbishop Damianos, if it bothers him that the scientists mostly want to see their cutting-edge equipment work wonders, while the monks want to see what the hidden texts might reveal about God's wonders. He says he's thought a lot about that, and in the end he believes scientific and theological objectives don't have to conflict. Theology is not something you can come in direct contact with. It is not material. In science, you can take a microscope and analyze things. Science is trying to find something material. 
Theology is trying to find the way that the soul can come closer to God, but both of them are about searching for something. The project is being paid for by a British charity called Arcadia Fund for the next four years, so the scientists and monks will have a good amount of time to debate how science and theology can coexist. For The World, I'm Noelle King, St. Catherine's Monastery, Egypt. Carved graffiti, hidden manuscripts, and more. We have a slideshow from St. Catherine's Monastery. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is supported by WGBH, producer of NOVA. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab with few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. NOVA's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Israel, there's a new song out that everyone's talking about. That's in small measure because it was banned this week from the airwaves by Israel's most popular music station, Army Radio. At least for now. Daniel Estrin brings us a story from Jerusalem. On Sunday, Yizhar Ashdot, a famous Israeli singer-songwriter, was at the Army Radio studio tuning up his guitar for an on-air performance of his newest album. But before he went on the air, he says, he got a sudden request from the radio administration. Your album, A Matter of Routine, radio officials said, don't play the title song. Here are some of the lyrics. Learning how to kill, you just need some momentum. Start off small and then it comes. You cock your weapon and your arm trembles. They're not men or women, they're just an object, a shadow. Learning how to kill is a matter of routine. Ashdot, the musician, explained the song on Israeli TV. I have a problem with calling something a protest song or a political song. This song talks about what happens to our kids when they enter the army. The Israeli army commander who heads the station said he censored the song from the live on-air performance because he didn't want to celebrate a song that denounces those who have sacrificed their lives to defend the country. Besides, he said, why would a station run by soldiers play a song demonizing those soldiers? Israeli dovish parliament member Zahava Galon protested the censorship on the nightly news. I'm pretty astounded, she said. Where have we come to that in Israel we're censoring songs? In the same TV story, hawkish politician Naftali Bennett retorted. This song is going to go straight to the Hezbollah station, Al-Manar, he said, because this is exactly the kind of ammunition our enemies need. It's a tricky issue. On the one hand, Army Radio's music station is the country's most popular. Every artist looking for a hit hopes for airtime on the station. On the other hand, it's a radio run by soldiers in a country where most citizens are compelled to serve. It's not surprising a radio station run by soldiers wouldn't want to air a provocative song about soldiers. But that's the thing. Army Radio has played the song before. They played it two weeks ago. They played it last week. And radio management says they may decide to play it again. A DJ at the station told me he put in a request to play the song on his show tomorrow, but the request was rejected. So he says he's going to play another newly released single that's just as critical. Even at Israel's Army Radio Station, where your boss is also your commander, there are some dissenting DJs. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Now to a very different music from Israel. Despite the rancor between Israel and Iran, an Israeli pop diva has received wide acclaim by releasing a Persian-language album. It went gold in Israel and has won her fans back in her native Iran. 
Reporter Josh Mitnick visited Rita at her home in Tel Aviv to talk about her musical roots in Tehran. Like Madonna or Sting, Israelis know her just as Rita. The gold and platinum albums lining the walls of her apartment are also a testament to her superstardom here. Rita grew up in Tehran in the 1960s, at a time when the capital of Iran had a thriving Jewish community, and Iran and Israel were at peace. Musically speaking, Rita was weaned on Persian lullabies sung by her mother. I remember her eyelashes, her huge eyes and warm voice. She used to sing for us, you know, to take the dombak, that it's a drum, Iranian drum, and uh, sing for us. Rita recalls her very first public performance. It was a song about a Persian goat shepherd she sang at a family wedding. That's when she knew she wanted to be a singer. I was four years old, and they put me on a chair and gave me a microphone. It was like, Alisa mana, mana, something like this. At eight years old, concern about anti-Semitism prompted her parents to move the family to Israel. And those old Persian songs came with them. When we came to Israel, my mother brought her records with her, and she used to play it, and sometimes to miss Iran and, you know, the place that she was born, and cry a lot. And these are, you see, these are the records. They, they were small records, you know, like singles. From an Israeli schoolgirl who was teased as Parsi or Persian, Rita went on to a storybook career. She spent her Israeli army service in a well-regarded singing troupe. She went on to top Hebrew charts and stayed there for decades. She acted in movies. She's performed for prime ministers and headlined national festivals in Israel. And then, one day, she felt a burning urge to revisit her Iranian roots. So she decided to release an album in Persian, even though some Israeli friends thought it was a bad idea. They said, what? You're going to do a whole record with the Ahmadinejad language? Who will listen to that? And I said, first of all, this is not Ahmadinejad language. He's one, a very, very, very small point in this huge, huge history and culture. And second... I don't care. I just have to do it. I need to do it. The album, released in January of this year, is called My Joys, and it's a modern take on old Persian standards. None of the Israeli musicians who adapted the music for Rita were Iranian, As a result, it's got moments of Mediterranean and Balkan flavor. Iranians found Rita's tracks on the internet and started playing them in computers and in clubs. She became an underground star in her native Iran. And even though communications with Israel could tag one as a spy, Persian language fan mail started flooding into her inbox. Scrolling through her smartphone, 
Rita reads a message from one love-struck fan. Dear Rita, universe is between us, and it helps us to send our power love to each other. I'm living in Tehran, and I'm 42 years old, and this is only one of those emails. Rita's become an accidental ambassador. She extols the beauty of Persian lyrics to packed concert halls around the world. Iranian fans have written to thank her for presenting a different face of Iran to the West, especially in Israel. We know Arabic music, we know Yemen music, we know Russian music, we know all kinds of music, but we don't know Persian music. For The World, I'm Josh Mitnick in Tel Aviv. Music by Rita in Tel Aviv. Rita begins a North American tour in Los Angeles on November 1st. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems online at RitaAllen.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.